In our time of worship today, we sang this song, and I just want to read the words. You are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. I stand, I stand in awe of you. I I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. I realized this week there's a second verse to that song. Never heard it before, never sung it before. You are beautiful beyond description, yet God crushed you for my sin. In agony and deep affliction, cut off that I may enter in. Who can grasp such tender compassion? Who can fathom this mercy so free? You are beautiful beyond description, Lamb of God who died for me. I kind of wonder why we never sang that verse. Maybe next time. But when you think of something that is awe-inspiring... What's the first thing that comes to your mind? For me, it, I, I think of, of times when I see something or someone and I am absolutely stopped in my tracks. Witnessing the birth of my children and life's first breath, awe-inspiring. Witnessing my wife's strength, in giving birth, awe-inspiring. Being at the base of Niagara Falls on a boat with some of the people that are in this very room as the power of the thunder of that water coming down just reverberates throughout your whole body. Seeing an eclipse. Being on a refueling mission of a B-2 bomber. I actually got to do that. I have pictures. One of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. Awe-inspiring. Being in the middle of both a hurricane when I was younger and a tornado when I was older. Watching bees do what God's designed them to do. Listening to a true master play an instrument. Hearing the range of the human voice. As, as I started considering just these things for me, and you've got yours, right? You, you've got the things that have stopped you in your tracks before that have just inspired this, oh, moment. I often find that when I think of these things, they start competing for one another. Well, what was the coolest? And as a man who is married, of course it's going to be the birth of my children and my wife, right? That, that's got to be it. That's, that's uh, Leroy Ellaby 101. But, but each one of those, when I stop and I consider it, it, it brings me to a place of being overwhelmed again, stopped in my tracks once again. In our passage today, this word awe is used in the translation, and this is what it said. They were continually devoting themselves to the teachings of the apostles and to fellowship and to breaking bread and prayer. And we've covered these things so far as it relates to church culture. And this is the next statement. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. 
and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Breaking it down a bit, everyone, this, this first church culture was authentic and it was filled with a spiritual vibrancy that affected those who were both inside the church and those who were outside the church. Kept feeling, the, the use of the verb here in the tense of, that this verb is, is communicating is, is that what was being known was not just in that momentary encounter, but, but was continuing to happen in the early church culture. The last part of that verse, a sense of awe. It wasn't from church buildings. It wasn't from church programs. It wasn't from human ability. It was spiritual. Supernatural characteristics that were taking place in the life of this church. The word that's used here for awe is phobos, or some say phobos. And uh, the uses in the New Testament are primarily, the, the way it's translated is the word fear. We get our word phobia from this. But it's also used in translating the idea of respect, great respect or reverence. So it can refer to that which causes fear as in terrifies you. Or it can also be referred to the words respect and reverence as in things that are awe-inspiring, as it's used here. A couple of examples of this word, Acts 5, um, and, and they heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Remember reading that part. And, and great fear came over all who heard of it. A little later, it was Sapphira, and immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men carried her out, and, and a great fear came over the whole church. Now imagine if that happened in here, right? Somebody lied openly to God, and I would imagine Phobos would come over us, both in the fear of God and the awe-inspiring, she just was struck dead. Acts 19, it's the reaction in Ephesus and the man with whom the evil spirit was in leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so they fled out of their houses naked and wounded. This became known to all, both the Jews and the Greeks, everyone who lived in Ephesus and fear fell among them. I can imagine that being true as well. Luke 7, when the Lord saw her, he felt deep compassion for her and he said, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. The bearers halted and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother and fear gripped all of them. Same word being used here. Luke actually uses the term 11 times in this, other variations more than that. But it's interesting because there is a word that actually corresponds to it in the Hebrew, yirah, and, and it does many of the same things. There is the use that, that speaks of general fear as to consequences or maybe punishment. There is the use that speaks to fear specifically in you break God's laws, you should be fearful. There's the use that speaks to the fear that produces respect and reverence that leads to right living and the ability to see God rightly, to stand in awe of him, to fear the Lord your God. 
The Old Testament is loaded with these references. If you do a study on the word fear, there's about three or four words that are used, but this one gets the majority of the uses. In Exodus, we see it as just one reference. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands, and he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of the speaking with him, God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone brightly, and they were afraid to come near him. What's significant about the uses of the word in the Old Testament is that it wasn't just fear for fear's sake. The way in which they viewed God, they they thought of God, they experienced God, was meant in all situations to, to cause them to learn, to grow, and to be living rightly before him. That was the purpose. It wasn't just that God wanted to scare them to death. It was to produce something in them. One rabbi, when he was talking about this and and what could be learned from the fear of the Lord and, and what it did in a person who responded rightly, noted a couple of things. That this fear of the Lord calls for seeing God and worshiping him. It's not the fear that would cause you to shrink back from something. It's the fear that would cause you to approach it because you know you can't shrink back far enough. You can't run far enough away, so you might as well run toward him. It's the kind of stuff that Psalm 95 talks about. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down before the Lord, our maker. Don't run from him. Let the fear inspire you to be close to him. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the voice of the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory to God. Calls for seeing God and worshiping him. It it, it challenges to be wise and walk in obedience. As Isaiah reminds, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. How many times does God remind his people because of those things? We, we read it in Deuteronomy and we kind of refer to that one more than any other because it's a prayer of the people of God daily. This is the command, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments, which I've commanded you all the days of your life 
and that your days may be prolonged. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 13 continues. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God is in the midst of you and he is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he'll wipe you off the face of the earth. Now, there's multiple fear scenarios going on in there, right? But we recognize that what is going on in, in the use of these things is not to cause people to shrink back. It's to cause them to approach with a reverential fear that says you are everything and I am nothing and to stand in your presence, you're granting that and I'm really, really grateful. It's pretty intense. It's inspirational. And, and there was a sense in the culture of the people of God that the more they feared him the more they stood in awe of him, the closer they were to all that he had for them. So this idea of fear is vital in that, last point of this rabbi, it gives hope for a future. When there is awe of God, it, it eliminates the greatest fear of humanity the unknown of death. You can say with the Apostle Paul, therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. I don't fear death. No fear death. When there is an awe of God, it eliminates trusting in the best that mankind can do for me, for you. Paul said, we do not speak wisdom among those who are immature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered into the heart of man, all that God is, has prepared for those who love him, there is an awe moment standing before God and recognizing that even what you're receiving inspires awe. This was the culture of the New Testament church that we're talking about in this moment of time. It was one filled with awe. It was a culture when, when people were left to try to explain divine things, not ordinary things, to, to view into these changed lives, not, not lives like the rest of the culture. They were looking into these people who were no longer doing what they were doing before, no longer talking as they were before. Well, anybody can discipline themselves for a little while, right? But that's not what they were seeing. And as a result, it left the people standing around, both in the church. I mean, imagine, you've known this person for years and years and years. And you know that God has changed you but now you see God change them, and you're like, no, that cat can't be. 
And then you watch the change. You watch the transformation day after day after day after day, year after year, and it inspires awe, not of the individual, but of God who can transform. People would see the good works, and all they could point to was God. He received the glory. It was a culture that was constantly seeing, recognizing, proclaiming that God was moving in them. It left them in awe of God. People saw this church, this church culture, as one doing things that were out of the ordinary for the culture that surrounded them. Peter gave a glimpse into it when he said this, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. This culture of the church was being called to things that even in the culture, the people wouldn't do, though it was right. It seems that when the church culture lived in awe of God, even the people around them stood in awe of God. What he was able to accomplish in mere men, what he was able to do in mere women. And I think I figured out, not because I'm really smart, but I, I think I figured out where some of the problem might lie in being awe-inspired regarding God. And I actually think it happened back in the late 1500s. You see, humanity has this tendency to change words and their meaning. We know this. In our current culture, there are words that 20 years ago you could use and now you can't use those words today because they mean something exactly opposite of what they meant before. We do that because in some ways the people group or the, the, the societal evolution that's taking place believes it's better, right? We want to make the words better. We, we want to try to make things better but most of the time when we do it, we simply kind of dumb down things. And, and the word I'm talking about specifically is the word awesome. Late 1500s, you see the desire was to further define something in that moment as reverential. They, they wanted to give it more gusto, so they took the word awe and they added some to it. Now it becomes bigger. It becomes more. So you can definitely have reverential fear and, and all that, right? You can do that because the word is now awesome. Simply meant profoundly reverential. By the late 1600s, awesome meant inspiring awe or dread. But by the 1960s, it had been weakened to its current condition of meaning impressive, very good. Now, though this may not tie to scripture, stick with me for just a second, because I find myself using the word awesome quite frequently, actually, 
caught myself this week multiple times because I'm looking at this, using the word awesome. And, um, and, and it's not the same as what I described to you in the very beginning of what inspired awe in me. What I'm talking about is something that really doesn't stop me in my tracks, but I'm describing it as if it does. Like, that was an awesome meal. That was an awesome catch. That is an awesome car. Right? It was in that I began to see that the road from awe to awesome kind of lined up with the road to indifference. They would not learn from the fear of God. They did not have an awe of God. They were indifferent to him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. I believe we're safe to say that these people were not in awe of God. They may have described him as awesome, meaning impressive or very good. God gave them over to depraved minds to do the things that were not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, evil, full of uh, lust, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The last part describes complete indifference toward God. There's one more pathway that I believe we see in this loss of the awe of God. It's how the lack of the awe of God leads to apathy or the irrelevance of God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, haters good, all of those things. Um, Holding, the lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Now he says, avoid such men as these. The the people Paul is describing here are actually convinced that they have some kind of godliness in their lives. But the way they are living, the one true God is simply irrelevant to them. So what are we seeing? I believe we're seeing what has taken place in in many churches and even in church culture today. There has been a loss of the fear of God, the awe of God. People are not seeing divine things, but ordinary things. They're, They're not seeing changed lives. They're seeing lives that look just like the culture that surrounds them. People are not seeing the awe of God producing lives of worship as Hector talked about a few weeks ago. Not not a moment of worship in a service, but lives of worship. 
Lives of wisdom, lives of obedience, lives filled with hope. You want to go to a depressing place, go to a meeting of pastors sometime. I don't understand how pastors can stand before congregations when they communicate with others how hopeless they feel about all the things that are going on. I don't understand it. But these people, they might hear people sing, Our God is an awesome God. But do they see people who live as if they believe it to be true? Can I tell you, this is not where church culture started. And, and this, is where, this is not what church culture is meant to be. It's not what church culture in Hope Chapel is meant to be. We are meant to be those who proclaim the greatness of God, those things that inspire awe of God. We are meant to be those who ask for and look for and see God do mighty things and give glory to God for his work. We are meant to be those who experience him daily and live in response to his greatness. We are to be a church culture stopped in our tracks living in awe of God. The second thing I want us to see that's tied to this is that we are to be a church culture of expectation. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of expectation where you twist God's arm behind his back and you say some scripture to him and you expect that he's going to do exactly what you tell him to do. That is not what I'm referring to today. I, I read one author who said that the early church was filled with expectation, first, because God was doing so many great things, and second, because they never knew what God was going to do next to overwhelm them. But they knew he was going to do something. That's pretty powerful. I believe this is, is truly something that walks hand in hand with the idea that we are supposed to constantly be in awe of God. It almost seems that one gives way for the other. And, and here's my example in the life of the Apostle Paul, one who was at the center of helping to form this healthy church culture and calling the people to health and calling them to effectiveness, to be who God had called them to be to live the life in Christ. Listen to what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings 
which we also suffer, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also are you sharers of our comfort. Now, it took a long time to get to this place, but Paul often does. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You're tracking with where he thinks he is. You're tracking with what he believes is going on. Now I want you to note the change here from the reality of the situation to the reason for the situation. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Now I want you to note the next change that goes on here. From reason for the situation to the expectation of the outcome. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Now note the change and how the church culture gets engaged in this whole process. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. Prayers of what? Prayers of expectation. Prayers that, that are in awe of God, that he is going to do something for this apostle in this moment of time, in the situation that he is in. Joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So there's these people that are in this church culture that are standing in awe of God on an ongoing basis. And now they're praying for the apostle Paul who believes he's about to die. And there is a level of expectation in them. Not twisting God's arm behind his back and saying, you've got to save Paul because if he dies, the whole church is going to, you know, go down the commode or whatever, right? They're not saying that. Not, they understand what they're saying. It, it was not only Paul and his companions, though, who were expecting that God was going to do something incredible. The people of the church were. Why? Because they were a culture of expectation. And to that end, they were praying for those very things. This was the church, the, the people who were being transformed right before the eyes of the culture that surrounded them. And in that, they were continually learning and growing in their awe of God. They were continually learning and growing and living in expectation of God moving in his power. For the purpose of saying, we're the church that has all the power of God reckon in us. No. To the glory of God. And because of that, the culture around them saw and knew and experienced that these people, these followers of Jesus, were a part of something different than they had ever seen. And remember, there were no denominations yet. There were no church buildings yet. There were no church programs yet. There were no celebrity pastors yet. Just people who stood in awe of God and the more they were frightened by what they were seeing, the more they approached him. They stood in awe of God and had expectation that he was going to do great things. 
So how do we keep from be, being a, a church culture that goes from awe to awesome, where the word awesome means nothing? I can use it as a, for a sandwich, and I can use it for a car, right? It means nothing. To go from that, where we want to be, where, where we become indifferent, and God becomes irrelevant. How do we keep from being a church culture where apathy overcomes expectation? The Lord had me in this passage a week or so ago, and as I meditated on it, I began to see some things that are really helpful here. It's, it's Psalm 86. This is what the writer says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. I think that's the starting point. Start from a position that recognizes the affliction of our tendency toward indifference. Our, our tendency toward God being irrelevant, maybe not in our words, but in the way in which we're living life, and find ourselves in a position before him that we need him. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O oh, you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Trust him. Truly place your trust in him. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I cry all day long. This is intentionality. This is persistence before him. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Find gladness in him. Find joy in him. Lift up your soul to him alone. We have so many avenues with which to lift up our souls now. And yet he's the only one that can do the repair necessary at any moment in time. For you, O Lord, are good ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Declare his goodness. Declare his faithfulness. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplication. Talk to him. Be honest with him. Humble yourself before him. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you for you will answer me. Express that faith that you have in him. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. No one like you, nor any other like you, or can do anything like you. Be monogamous, right? It's only him. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Declare his creative works. Declare his right for all of creation to worship him. For all people to worship him. Whether they do or not, he has the right he deserves the worship. Declare his place as the one true God. Verse 11 goes on and says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Ask. 
Ask him to teach you. Refuse to learn from another. I will walk in your truth. Commit to his truth as your guide. And this is the one that really struck me. Unite my heart to fear your name. Ask him to take that heart that we have that can constantly be divided among all kind of things and take every one of those portions and bring it back together to where we stand in awe of him no matter what we're talking about. Bring my heart to a place where it is singularly focused, where it stands in awe of you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. Recount his goodness. Hector has been encouraging us. Ross has been encouraging us as of late in, in, in worship to, to use our own words. Do you know that when they're singing up here, you can actually stop singing out there? You can, really. You don't have to follow the words that are on the screen. You can actually close your eyes or open them. You can actually raise your hands or lower them. You can actually stand or you can sit and you can use your own words. It's perfectly okay, right? Recount his goodness. Worship him, his greatness every day with all that you are. To stand in awe of him must be our church culture. To stand with expectation of him doing great and mighty things must be our church culture. Let's pray. Lord, in your word, the psalmist reminds us to talk to you about these things. And in there, there's the portion that we read, unite my heart to fear your name. Fear reverential respect, standing in awe of who you are. Lord, let us have great expectations for what you are going to do. Let us recount the things that you are doing in a moment of time to everyone who will listen so that we in our own voice we with our own thoughts, we with our own hearts are standing in awe of you. Lord, I know that that, that has been lost in so many different ways. And yet it can easily be found in a moment like we were in when we were being led to just speak truth about who you are, to just recount the glory of who you are as God, not just the things you have done, but the character through which you do them, God. We must be that people. The world needs to see and know that you are God. And that your truth is really true. The things that you say, you will bring to pass. The promises that you make, 
are forever. We do not have to fear anything more than we fear not being in your presence. Let us stand in awe of you. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp? Your infinite wisdom Who can fathom The depths of your love You are beautiful beyond description Majesty enthroned above So I stand, I stand in all of you, I stand, I stand in all of you, holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in all of you. As we sung those words this morning, Lord, let them be the prayer and the cry of our heart this week as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go out there. Be in awe of God. Go out there and expect him to do great things. That is the culture in which we live. Amen? Have a great week. Hug somebody's neck before you get out of here, and we'll see you back next week unless the rapture takes place, and then we'll see you in heaven.